the things that I was worried about in 2010, I'm not worried about anymore in terms of just a complete ban. You know, in the early days when something's very small, regulators, uh, we were feared that uh, Bitcoin would be seen as competition to the dollar. And Department of Treasury would just say, nope, no competition. No Goodbye. Money, sorry. Yeah. yeah. But happily, uh, the United States had a, a very healthy history of private money. In you know, back in the 1800s, wow. some uh, banks would issue their own currencies, stuff like that. And that history carried forward into today. That's dope. This episode is sponsored by my good friends at Bullish. Stay tuned for more information on this amazing company later in the episode. Rarely do you have the opportunity to someone who interacted regularly with Satoshi Nakamoto, but today I had the opportunity to speak with Jeff Garzik, whose resume is longer than the Constitution of the United States. This is an absolutely whirlwind conversation that will blow your mind, including how we get to Mars and how soon that's going to happen. So, I mean... You've obviously done basically everything. Yeah. Right. That's why I joked that you haven't slept. Why Bitcoin and why so early? Because most people at that time saw it and said, you're all nuts <laughs> and dismissed it for another five or six years until the price was high enough for them to say, maybe this is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's we can talk about that. Are we live? Or you have at it. We get you. We like to get all the personality at the beginning before oh. you know you're being recorded. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, very sneaky. Yeah, yeah. The the early Bitcoin stuff. There's there's tons of stuff to talk about there. Um, I uh, you know being a nerd, there was Slash.org as uh, a website called News for Nerds, and that's how I and many others, uh, Jed McCaleb of Mt. Gox and Stellar fame, uh, a bunch of developers found Bitcoin all of from that one post. And, uh, you know, Bitcoin, a decentralized currency. And uh, I'd been waiting for that for like 10 years is I, I relive science fiction. I encourage people to read science fiction. Um, you know, nonfiction is like always backwards looking. Science fiction is always forward looking, optimistic, looking at the future, how to build the future. And so it's always been a really good inspiration. And I knew that decentralized currency was coming. You know, I've known for, for 30 years now. It's just a matter of when and how, not if. And so when I saw that Slashdot.org post, you know, in my, my egotism, I said, ah, it's not a decentralized currency. It's got to be like five servers in AWS and that's it. And happily, I, you know, it was open source. I downloaded the source code and proved myself wrong. You know, it was not just five servers in a data center that coordinated leader election with the Paxos protocol and stuff like that. It was truly something new and novel and different. And the cool thing about open source is, uh, you know, so nobody knew who Satoshi was. Nobody, he doesn't have a CV. What's his resume? What is his credentials? Who knows? Uh, you know, I didn't know, but I was an engineer. So I could download the source code, look under the hood and say, you know, this is not bullshit. Well, can we say that on? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is not bullshit. It is, say bullshit. <laughs> it is a, you know, it is as what it's claimed to be. And obviously there, there were a lot of, uh, uh, you know, ways that Bitcoin might not succeed in 2010. There were a thousand ways that it could get overregulated. It could just get, 
totally adopted like Liberty Reserve or Pecunix Gold with the criminal community and nothing else. Um, you know, there was this worry about the Stamp Act and all these other uh, early uh, regulations that people might or might not think apply to crypto. Lots of risk. But again, open source means you can peer under the hood. You don't have to care about somebody's CV. You don't have to care about their reputation. It's all about the code and it's all about the merit. And, uh, you know, coming from, uh, you know, well over a decade in open source, uh, Linux kernel, I worked under uh, Linus Torvalds for about a decade, uh, the inventor of Linux. And it was the open source process. Just show up, propose a change in the form of a patch and send it to Satoshi. And so the very first day I did, and uh, it was uh, calculating how many transactions per second does Bitcoin need to do in order to hit PayPal's uh, limits. So my first change that I proposed was, uh, maybe, maybe this is like uh, foreshadowing, was uh, a block size change. Oh boy. It was like, we got to do 4,000 transactions per second in Bitcoin or this puppy's not going to go anywhere. That was literally my first proposed change to Bitcoin. Obviously, since it breaks consensus, it was immediately shot down. Of course. Uh, but again, that's the open source process is you propose a change, people review it, just like in chemistry or biology, it gets peer reviewed. And if it's good, it goes in. If it's not, it goes in the trash bin. And, uh, you know, again, that was not a not good patch. Um, it went in the trash bin, but Satoshi got back to me immediately. And it, it wasn't just a screw off. It was, you know, this is not right, but here's the reasons. Um, but, you know, keep contributing. And so I did. I uh, did a lot of other changes I made uh, back in uh, the day. For example, you had to download the entire blockchain and it took forever. And so I made this like more than twice as fast. And so all of a sudden people could use Bitcoin more quickly than they could before. Or uh, ripping out the CPU miner from Bitcoin. The early, early Bitcoin was just a big hairball of Windows software. There was a user interface with a wallet and a node and a miner. You could like go to like file mining click the checkbox and it'd have a little, you know, mining uh, icon, uh, breaking rocks type of thing. And all of that was stuffed together in like five source code files, which were the ugliest spaghetti code that you ever saw. And so that, that really told me that uh, Satoshi was absolutely a genius, but he was also self-taught. It was super clear that, uh, you know, it wasn't formal, uh, unit tested, regression tested, stress tested, fuzz tested, heavily software engineered code. It was someone who taught themselves coding and they put this together. He did what was absolutely genius is he took algorithms that were crypt analyzed, well tested off a shelf, you know, proof of work, hash functions, network functions, and then put it all together in something completely unique. And that was when I knew that, you know, this is literally the decentralized currency that I've been waiting for. It really is decentralized. It really does not depend on somebody's CV. It does not depend on an angel investor, you know, making a series A commitment or anything like that. It's pure technology and purely based on people's adoption, people's interest, you know, people's philosophy. 
totally Craig Wright, right? <laughs> definitely describing him. No, well, no, I, I no. got like five. No, no, and no. Let me give five notes. And, 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 and if I get five cameras to say no to. Yeah, <laughs> totally in jest. Interestingly, though, what you just described at the beginning of Bitcoin and all the things that you just went on rant about, not a Series A investor, not a... Well, now you're actually describing everything else being Absolutely. built in crypto now. Is that it problematic is. or is that fine now because we started at Bitcoin? Well, that's that's a tough question. You asked tough questions, sir. Sorry. Um, the uh, My answer has become a bit more complicated. One of the things that we see a lot of is we see a lot of people today as we sit recording this not building on Bitcoin. And the part of the reason for that is Bitcoin is doesn't include that extra token, it, obviously. But that also impacts the economics of building businesses on Bitcoin, is that if you want to build on Bitcoin, you can't just release a token and have some extra or some NFTs and have some extra juice to give you some runway. You either are breaking out the credit cards or you're hitting venture capital. And so, or you're, you know, a college student who's enjoying ramen as I did many decades ago. I still and, enjoy ramen. <laughs> <laughs> and you're kind of, you know, just self-funding with your own time and energy and stuff like that. But uh, it's really hard to build a business on Bitcoin without that extra juice. And so just natural economic incentives, people are going to go the NFT route, the play to earn route, the uh, what's the latest A16Z trend route, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I'm a big fan of A16Z, by the way. Uh, but that fundamentally is a handicap on Bitcoin. As Bitcoin is, you know, it's, it's my, my heart. It's what got me started, but it's also kind of ossified and it's economically difficult to build on it versus building on some of these other systems where there's more funding or more developer energy or just flat out my knowledge as a developer it's literally harder to build on bitcoin than on other systems just from a, well, maybe a pure that's a good thing engineering it is it is <laughs> no you're absolutely right it is so that that's the kind of you know the yin and the yang of uh building on bitcoin so it's not a an easy answer you talked about for you that a decentralized currency was not how or when you know, it, get the idea. Are there other things like that now that you think are inevitable that are coming that we haven't seen yet? Um, personal, uh, they call it AGI, uh, Autonomous Generalized Intelligence, basically like the the termin the friendly Terminator type robot AI you make stuff. Me smarter, I need. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that kind of thing's coming. You know, you'll have an AI personal assistant on your. Uh, on your phone, you'll pull out your phone and you'll be like, you know, whatever you call it, like, uh, hey, pal, you know, call such and such. And, uh, you know, already my Google Assistant can literally do what I just said, just from basic voice recognition. But they don't have context. They don't have, uh, well, Jeff said, call Momo. Who the heck is Momo? You know, a personal assistant would know that, but a computer doesn't. So it, uh, uh, robots that start to learn your personality, um, and start to be able to, to interact on a quasi-human level. Um, that's coming and that's going to be enabled by crypto because if you can uh, store a random number on a little piece of flash drive, 
that can be a self-sovereign entity thanks to crypto. That could be a private key which controls funds, which controls smart contracts, which can actuate all sorts of things in the real world, which can hire people. So uh, you'll have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely on the robot future where robots will be hiring people, which will be hiring robots and, and, and on and on down the line. We'll be in the autonomous cars that bid for lane space on the roads and, uh, Okay, I'm in. Oh, well, no hands. I'm in my Tesla. Say, you're, yeah, you're, no hands. You're looking, That's you're talking right. To your assistant. And it's like, uh, Sir Garzik, would you like to use the VIP lane for an extra Bitcoin? I'll be like, heck yeah! So it'll, you know, bid for lane space and go. So that that's the kind of autonomous, robot-driven, crypto-infused future that uh, we're headed towards. Well, I like because you said that nonfiction is rear you know looking in the rear view and this is science fiction yeah i actually had the pleasure of sitting with neil stevenson which is fantastic today. huge fan everybody in crypto is a debt to yeah neil. which was uh, absolutely amazing that future sounds incredible but there's some potential dystopian aspects to that sure too. sure absolutely um i i definitely refer uh everyone uh listening or watching to check out a commercial called alice it was uh, produced by uh, the Chobani Yogurt Company, but it's a uh, it's a, a near future vision. Uh, it's it's very pastoral. This video, it's uh, you know, there's a lot of permaculture. There's a lot of naturally grown stuff. But then you see a drone fly into the video to deliver some food. Then you have an autonomous vehicle, you know, drive you to your friend's house. And uh, I like to think that that's the kind of future that we ought to head towards. It's not just like Blade Runner, you know, no green. It's all robots and metal. And, you know, I'm it, it's very much. Uh, and, and I notice a lot of the especially the, the Bitcoin maxis get into the, you know, the various food fads and stuff like that. Uh, part of that, I think, is just a, a wanting of something more than just crypto and robots and machines and, you know, connecting humans and UBI and, you know, improving how humans live in the world today. That's I know we're, we're getting into like cliched startup territory, but that's that's pretty much, uh, I think, where where we need to be heading. And that's kind of my positive vision for the future. Well, I love the Jetsons as a kid, and I feel like yeah, absolutely because we don't have even have flying <laughs> cars. So, but, <laughs> we do have moving sidewalks. We, we do very much have moving sidewalks, which is true. Very popular in the, in, in the Jetsons. So what was your favorite book? Uh, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. Uh, oh, correction, that's my second favorite book. My first favorite book is Neil Stevenson's Zodiac. Nobody's ever heard of it. Nobody's read it. It was his first book. And, you know, if you thought Snow Crash was, you know, well-plotted, well-paced, so Zodiac's like 2X that. I've actually never read Zodiac. I've, of course, read Snow Crash. So yeah, you, you have the feeling that somebody dropped acid and wrote this book. Because it's like... I wish I could have asked him if he dropped acid and wrote that book. <laughs> but I can't go back in time, unfortunately. And I know in your current capacity, you're actually investing in metaverse. You have a metaverse portfolio. What excites you about what's actually being built in that space now? Is there anything that terrifies you? Is there anything that is just not going to work and it's totally broken? And well, uh, part of my part of my core philosophy is it's it's uh, I, I refer to Darwin a lot, meaning that uh, uh, a lot of people throw a lot of projects out there, and just like the venture capital power law, uh, ninety percent will fail, and then ten percent will succeed. 
you know, or maybe, you know, 5% will like limp along and then 5% will be Uber and Lyft and unicorns and, and all that stuff. That's where we are with metaverse is we're trying to figure out what the fuck we want. Throwing yeah. stuff at the wall. Yeah, we're. It, I, I use that literally. I, I use the phrase throwing spaghetti at the wall all the time and to see what sticks. I've uh, I own land in Decentraland uh, since it uh, came out. Um, it reminds me of Second Life from a decade ago. Which is, and, uh, I say that all the time. People are like, what's that? <laughs> we, we've been here before. I played the Sims. Yeah, yeah. It's like we've been here before a decade ago. Um, but, uh, there, there's at the same time, we're all trying because we all want it to succeed. We all want there to be that, uh, oh shoot. What was that Steven Spielberg movie recently? Uh, it's not Ender's Game. It was the Oasis. Oh yeah. Come on, help me out audience. Ready player one. Thank okay. you audience. Which I reference all the time and just blank. Yeah, I just so blank. Don't put too. me on Jeopardy. I know the answer is. So so we all want Ready Player One Oasis, you know, haptic suit type stuff. Um, you know, that fully immersive experience. There's uh you know, a lot of benefits uh that are purported, claimed, hoped, and we all at least want to try. And so I'm I'm never gonna like shit on someone trying. Uh, to innovate, trying to reach that goal, even if they don't. That's uh, specifically one of the reasons why I dislike the word shitcoin. There are a lot of shitcoins out there. there yeah, we can we could both admit that. But at the same time, if I'm just assuming blankly J random developers building a shitcoin, that's doing him a disservice because he's most likely, you know, honestly trying to figure out stuff. He's trying to build something that he finds personally rewarding and maybe change the future as well. So, uh, you know, I, I dislike shitting on innovation. And so while metaverse stuff is kind of nascent and not very exciting and second lifey, you know, I don't want it to go away. I want those efforts to continue and build on each other. You talk about the term shitcoin and hating it, and it becomes all encompassing. And obviously, they never get thing gets thrown in the bucket. I would argue that in this space, we have a huge language problem in general. Shitcoin is terrible. Cryptocurrency is the worst term in the history of mankind because 99% of them have no intention of being currencies, and it pisses off regulators and governments. Oh yeah, oh yeah, right algorithmic stable coin <laughs> right so i actually think that it, i'm not I, maybe we need better pr for the entire agency or something but i think we actually have a huge problem with language we do we do and like uh, scam is another thing that everything's me crazy. a scam if it doesn't yeah. work <laughs> yeah and like you know the bitcoin maxis like everything that's not bitcoin is a scam and stuff like that and to me that like helps the real scammers hide because if you're like this legit project and BitConnect are both scams, you know, I just can't take that person seriously because it's not helping regulators or normal people sort the wheat from the chaff, which is really, I think, the core crypto problem today is like, how do you know what's what is a scam or a Ponzi versus what's uh, quality versus, you know, just new and hopeful and naive? Right. We get a so, lot yeah, of something someone just tried and it didn't work. Exactly. Scam. Exactly. Exactly. And so how, you know, I think a lot about uh, as I build uh, Vesper.finance, which is uh, DeFi uh, uh, DAP really focused on kind of average people uh, just using DeFi very safely. I think about all the ways that that can go wrong 
And then I think, how do we protect people just coming into the space? And so that's like one of the biggest questions I asked myself this year is, you know, new person, Joe or Jane, just heard about crypto. They probably heard like uh, some random crypto that's awful. It's but that shit. guy, yeah, Doge. yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that brings them into crypto. Okay, what's step two that helps them sort the wheat from the chaff, sort the good from the bad. I don't have an answer. Right, well, the, the good news for you is that uh, we've now been through all the iterations of shit that breaks. <laughs> and it seems right now to be breaking left and right and terrifying. The, the bad news is that people are getting hurt when that happens. But what you just addressed to me is outside of our vernacular, which we talked about, the biggest problem is UX, UI. Yep. Right, that obviously trickles down to what you just said, security and being able to do these. but if the average person opens a screen and says, what the hell is this? They never even start because it's too confusing. So how do you build something? You, you said you want, how do we get as fast as PayPal? So how do you build something that's as simple as PayPal? Yeah, that, that I, uh, I, I don't have an answer, but I asked that question of myself many times um, when we're building uh, Vesper.finance, you know, we ask ourselves, you know, what mistakes might users make and how do we avoid that? You know, how do we avoid a fat fingered click? How do we avoid, I, I meant to type in one Bitcoin, but I actually typed in 10 Bitcoin. And, you know, then boom, I suddenly 10X my transaction. Actually, but they might have no. done themselves a favor. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, so absolutely UI UX is uh, uh, number one, we have a lot of rough edges. We got a lot of work to do in uh, crypto broadly. Um, wallets uh, still feature long strings of incomprehensible numbers, hashes, public Terrifying. keys, and that's you should never show that to an average person, ever, ever. They have no way of knowing if that's legit or not. You know, I as a developer, I have to like run some command line stuff just to know if this hash really belongs to Scott or it belongs to some Eastern European criminal. You know, and so the average person has no hope. So again, uh, UI UX is so critical and uh, we still got a long way to go. Still got a lot of work to do. Everybody knows that there are advantages to trading on both centralized and decentralized exchanges, but why not choose an exchange like Bullish that offers the best of both worlds? Bullish's total trading volume recently exceeded $25 billion in just seven months since they launched. And they have the best liquidity in the game when it comes to Bitcoin USD. Now, Bullish has released the first major upgrade to its liquidity pool technology with the introduction of a concentrated range-bound liquidity pool for the Bitcoin USD trading pair. This upgrade triples the order book depth within a range of 2%, making it one of the world's deepest Bitcoin USD trading pairs. This industry-leading order depth means you can trade confidently at scale with clearly understood price impact. You should check them out immediately at bullish.com slash Melker. Yeah, and then I would say the next obvious challenge from there, okay, we get the UI UX right, and now we have the next 100, 200, 500 million people come in. Can anything we've built actually scale to service those people? Yeah, that's, that's, that's another good question. Right now we have uh, uh, mentally imaged one of those champagne fountains in your mind is we have like a, an L1, a layer one blockchain Bitcoin. Okay, it's a it's a champagne flute that fills up. Well, now it's going to start to spill over. 
So uh, that's what happens with fees and blockchains as they get uh, used quite a bit is, okay, Ethereum's fees are high, so people are spilling over into BSC and Polygon and Avalanche and Optimism and some of these other L2s. Well, they didn't solve the problem. People just moved, you know, to a less full champagne flute. Well, that champagne flute's going to fill up, meaning that once people are there, fees are up, and then people are just going to move to the third lily pad and fourth and fifth. And it's kind of hopping lily pads to find uh, a ghost town with low fees. But then once everyone moves into the ghost town, it's no longer a ghost town and chain fees go up. So we haven't solved that problem. It's just a cycle. I don't know if it's the Lion King cycle of life or not. But, uh, you know, there's a chain with no usage, then it gets usage, fees get high, and then people economically respond to those incentives. They either do less transactions or they find an off-chain L2 roll up or something like that, or they just go somewhere else, you know? They go, they go like to they end up at like layer five. Exactly. Like layer one, exactly. layer twos, and now it's ZK roll ups, optimistic roll ups. And is it then literally layer three, layer four, layer five, or is there? I think PayPal is like a layer three. Right. So sometimes you get the, the plasma network, the lightning network, stuff like that. So you'll have like the blockchain settlement, then you'll have your high speed uh, contract negotiations that sit on top of that. And that's where you can scale the payments. But they do all have to eventually settle, settle somewhere. Yep. I don't know if that's yep. Bitcoin or Ethereum or ask any leader of any L1 and like, that's <laughs> it. Maybe they're right. I, I don't think any of them win. I think we'll live in a multi-chain world and whoever actually wins, be, figures out interoperability will probably be the winner. But I mean, is do we ever get to a layer one that can do everything or is that just an impossible technology? No, no. So it will it, be it, the champagne. Despite the, the fact that Bitcoin maximalists will give you a different answer, um, which uh, I, I love, but uh, there's not going to be one at one winner. There's going to be a few winners. Again, power law applies. 99% of the tokens will die. 99% of the chains will die. But that other 1% is going to be like one or two or three chains. There'll be a Bitcoin. I don't see Bitcoin ever dying. No. Um, there'll be uh, an Ethereum. You know, there'll be one or two others. And then there'll be like all the babies that are competing to be a big boy. But uh, that's just, you know, how incentives, network effect, all that winds up uh, concentrating. So you got, you know, the, the throwing spaghetti at the wall innovation side on L1s, L2s, dApps. But then you have the, the mature chains. And so far, uh, Bitcoin's kind of the granddaddy. Ethereum's kind of grand central station where bridges and other chains interconnect through Ethereum. And so uh, besides those two, there are not any other obvious winners with staying power does the merge concern you nah it's uh you know it'll it'll happen or it won't and either way transactions will keep going you know it'll explode or it won't and either way transactions will keep going you know there are people that are highly motivated for things to just keep working you know people always ask uh about bitcoin even like what happens in the event of a, a hack? What happens in the event of a 51% attack? You know, my, my answer is always a rhetorical question of, are all these holders just going to give up and go home, you know, and not fight back for their, their assets to be continue to be worth something? No, 
You know, they're they're going to engage developers. They're going to engage, you know, everybody to make sure that uh, their their blockchain, their assets continue its integrity following that hack. Certainly doesn't make us very popular with regulators and governments when things break. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. But that's Darwin at work. You know, you, this is the natural cycle. Um, they just have to recognize that, you know, we're we're throwing spaghetti at a wall. We're seeing what works. We're seeing what doesn't work. Um, I would like to see a little bit more, again, getting back to a little bit earlier in our conversation, uh, some more self-regulation, self-identification of these are obviously scams and Ponzi's and, you know, using UI and other things to help steer the average Joe's away from that stuff. Um, and you know, maybe there, you know, I'm, I'm making this up. Maybe there needs to be like a, an expert mode in every wallet that, you know, you can't trade outside of a, bu- a white budget. list, you know, without you have that. to log a hundred hours. Exactly. To, exactly. Like, yeah. Mode. Yeah. Like, video games have it and we're treating everything like a video <laughs> game now everywhere. Anyways. So that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and what I find kind of interesting is that everybody talks about the scams, you know, and, and all these things as if they've never existed before. Christmas. Oh yeah. It's it's money. You know, scams have lo- have existed as long as money has, has existed. And so uh, that, that's definitely frustrating. I, I understand, you know, we talk with regulators at, at Block and Vesper and we get the, we get their frustration. They just see average folks getting hurt. You They're know? not wrong. And so they, you know, it's kind of like uh, uh, maybe a rough, super rough analogy is customer support. Nobody ever calls customer support when they're happy. No. You know, I just want you, you guys to know you've been doing a great exactly. job. Exactly. <laughs> so like, you know, congressmen, congresspeople only hear like when something blows up or Fs up or something like that. Um, you know, they're they're kind of like uh, police. They only see like the bad part of society. And uh, I think that can give a, a skewed view. But uh, it's it's again, it's Darwin. It's uh, it's a sign of maturity that regulators are looking at crypto. If crypto was small, they'd either just ignore it or ban it. If you had said, hey, there's going to be an executive bill from the president of the United States just about this space even two years ago, people would have probably sent you off to the... Exactly. They called it a loony bin. <laughs> but I mean, we're on the grandest stage. We really are. And and it's uh, it's humbling. Thinking back to, to 2010 of, uh, you know, we, where we worried about government attention. You know, we, we, we just wanted uh, Bitcoin to, you know, kind of continue to to slowly bubble up, to slowly mature. There was a, a very specific incident in Bitcoin's history. Uh, WikiLeaks wanted to use uh, uh, or excuse me, uh, one of the uh, uh, Bitcoin talk forum users was contacting WikiLeaks to get them to accept Bitcoin because WikiLeaks had just had their payment processing cut off. They're like, you're evil WikiLeaks. And so PayPal, uh, Visa, MasterCard, they just, boom, you know, debanked them. And uh, so, you know, obviously uh, 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 Bitcoin was very early. Few people had heard of Bitcoin. But the people that knew, they were like, hey, this is, this is an alternative. Satoshi very clearly said, no, let's not, don't bring it on. You know, we, we want Bitcoin to mature, to slowly get out in the community, to get adoption in a way that ensures a survival. Um, you know, in 2010, I, I had I was a long haired uh, programmer hippie uh, worried about, uh, you know, getting arrested for violating the Stamp Act simply for coding on Bitcoin. 
because you just didn't know in those days. And, uh, you know, thankfully in March of 2013, there were Senate hearings, there was regulatory clarity, and that actually, uh, much to libertarian chagrin, helped Bitcoin succeed and helped it in an upward trajectory. Uh, but uh, that WikiLeaks thing was a very clear signal from Satoshi of, uh, you know, this is not just about burning down all the institutions. This is about building a currency that's going to work, going to be resilient and going to survive, you know, regardless of what institution, you know, burns down or builds up. There are echoes of what you just described and what's still happening, though, with regulation and government. You said you were afraid that you were going to be in violation of the Stamp Act and then you got some clarity. Well, now on a much larger scale, I think the entire industry, anyone who's building anything, trying to start a company, still has no clarity and is afraid, in the United States at least, to even attempt to innovate, attempt to operate here. Now we're starting to see pushes, we're seeing bills proposed, but don't we still have the same problem just on a bigger scale? No, it's, it's a good point. And, and I think that's, that's true to a certain extent. Um, one of the things that uh, people complain about as, as we record this today, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S. is very much focused on not providing guidance, just providing enforcement. And there have been a lot of complaints about that approach is, you know, a crypto company, the, literally the position they're in is we have to hope and pray that we're not a security because, you know, the SEC isn't going to give us any guidance. They're just going to bring the cops when we, you know, Punish break the law. Five years, like many yeah, reports. Yeah, yeah. And so there, there is that uh, climate. But at the same time, the things that I was worried about in 2010, I'm not worried about anymore in terms of just a complete ban. You know, in the early days when something's very small, regulators, uh, we were feared that uh, Bitcoin would be seen as competition to the dollar. And Department of Treasury would just say, nope, no competition. No Goodbye. money, sorry. Yeah. But happily, uh, the United States had a, a very healthy history of private money. In you know, back in the 1800s, wow. some uh, banks would issue their own currencies, stuff like that. And that history carried forward into today. Other countries, uh, you know, China and Russia, uh, notably, they have a uh, uh, law that basically says the official currency or nothing. And United States, thankfully, is, you know, we have a legal tender law, but it doesn't say or nothing. Right. And so that was the uh, that was the hole through which uh, all the cryptocurrencies survived. But, yeah, today we still have those worries, but there are more of us. Yeah. And so I'm with not a lot more money with a lot more. <laughs> money. So I'm not as worried that just like and, and it's more about average holders, too is like, just think through a ban of cryptocurrency. They just say, we don't like it anymore, banned. And think about every, you know, it's like 20, 25% I've seen stats of Americans have used crypto yeah. at some point in their lives. Do you want to piss off one fourth of the entire nation? No. But in 2010, it's like, do you want to piss off three long haired developers who, you know, are probably pissed off anyway? We don't care. So uh, I think in, in 2022, crypto companies are in this, in similar lack of clarity situation, but there's so much more of us and so much more capital that we have the ability to, to fight back. Yeah, I mean, back then you had to worry about them banning it. Now you have to worry about them making a really crappy copy of it in a central bank digital currency. That's right. That's right. Or they think uh, that, you know, love them to death. 
they think they're helping, but they write the regulation really poorly and it turns out not to help. And so they, they got a lot of people just, you know, this staff, this staff, this staff, this lobbyist, this lobbyist, and then Ripple being like uh, funding all this anti-Bitcoin stuff. now we have to like sit here Bitcoin and wait for what happens to Ripple to see what's going to happen to everyone else. I yeah. thought we'd be in that yeah. position. I mean, if there's people I try to have, I've had this argument so many times who are like, I want Ripple to die, I hate Ripple. I'm like, I actually really want them to win or else your thing will probably also be deemed a security. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, Ripple's been my classic, this is obviously security, Example, since it's been in existence. And if Ripple can you know, exist, then that means by implication, others, which are much less obviously a security, are in, I hope, a better place. Right. I guess what I just said, it speaks to the fact that, and we touched on this earlier, there's this massive tribalism, right? Bitcoin maximalism, Ethereum maximalism, XRP army, Link Marines, whatever it is. Aren't we just way too small not to be completely working together and focused on pushing the entire ecosystem forward? We, we are. We need that in our uh, competition. And uh, yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> Is, uh, you know, we need that competition. It's very healthy. It's very Darwinian. Um, it's very natural. The, you know, the winners will bubble up, et cetera. Um, I wish there was more working together specifically, uh, like I said, on scams and stuff like that. But uh you know, uh, we all get kind of reflective after many years and it's it moves into the philosophy side of uh, tribalisms in our DNA. You know, look at sports teams, look at politics, look at stuff outside of crypto. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, I'm going to disinherit you because you're a Democrat or I'm going to disinherit you because you're a Republican. And it's all just tiresome <laughs> it, it, it is really. i think that's the best way i just absolutely exhausting how do you you can see why people want to go uh plug into ready player one yeah and opt out of this world entirely or like you know out of this world uh, that's why we launch uh satellites i've been a, a sci-fi nerd uh, you know since since i was born uh, I grew up uh, going down to Cape Canaveral, watching space shuttle launches, stuff like that. And so that was uh, the impetus for uh, let's get a open source node in space. So I created the uh, first, uh, as far as I know, open source satellite. Um, uh, real quick history. There's something called uh, ITAR, I-T-A-R, uh, export controls, where if you have a technology in the, in the early 1990s, this included encryption. You could not send it outside the United States. Otherwise, they put you in jail for a very long time. Well, the uh, uh, Clinton executive order in 1996 said that we could export encryption. That was a sea change that opened up cryptocurrency. It opened up the Internet. Um, it really changed so many things because before that Clinton executive order, there were crippled versions of encryption that were for U.S. people, and there were non-crippled versions of encryption that were for non-U.S. people. And if you uh, wanted to get the better version, you could download it. That's fully legal, but you couldn't transmit it elsewhere as a, an American citizen. And uh, this, this encryption uh, executive order really, like, totally changed export controls and fast forwarding to 2014 satellites are under those same export controls as encryption. I wanted to say this is totally ridiculous. I'm using off the shelf hardware, off the shelf software, open source cryptocurrency uh, software. 
you know, China, Russia, North Korea, anybody can download this tech just off the internet. This is ridiculous that I can't post it to the internet. And so I went through Department of State, Department of Commerce, and got a, an exemption letter saying that, yes, you can post your satellite design to the internet. And that was the story of the, the world's first open source satellite that uh, eventually uh, made it into orbit. I was a space camp kid. Oh, cool. My, my dad is the head of the emergency room at the University of Florida, and they randomly got the space shuttle contract when I was a kid. And so he de facto became the head doctor for the space shuttle program. Oh, that's so fantastic. Every single launch when I was a kid in the early 80s. Absolutely incredible. So I could share that. And that, that I think it was really formative to be able to Yeah, wasn't see it an that. experience? It's like, and it's just like 1983 and there's people everything. going into space. And now you're launching uh, nodes into space. What else are we going to do up there? Are we going to Mars? Absolutely. Going to, we're going to uh, uh, literally uh, going to the moon next year. Uh, not physically, but we're sending uh, hardware and a rover. And we're going to uh, just do some test transactions, test communication, stuff like that. Um, but uh, fundamentally, you know, we as a human race are moving outward into the solar system. Um, we're uh, going to, uh, outside of a decade, uh, land more people on the moon. Uh, outside of 15 years, we're going to land more people on Mars. We're uh, literally right this second, uh, Elon Musk, Starlink, some other projects are wiring our solar system for networking. Such that uh, once you go outside Earth's gravity... Uh, it's very easy, uh, uh, backing up a second, it takes a lot of rocket fuel just to escape Earth's gravity. But once you escape Earth's gravity, you can go to the moon, you can go to Mars, you can go to the asteroid belt. So this is uh, developing depots in space, fuel depots, space stations where people stop by and then, you know, kind of bus stations in, yeah. in space. All of this is coming in the next 10 years and it's all due to economics. And that economics is all due to uh, Elon Musk. And that, uh, I, I drill it down to Elon Musk posted the price of a Falcon 1 rocket launch on his website. You know, most people listening to this are like, okay. But for the space community, these launches usually cost billions of dollars. And they're secretly negotiated between defense contractors, which are absolutely huge. And he totally rebooted space economics with that one rocket pricing. And all of that has kind of trickled down from uh, uh, what he did on that day with Falcon 1 pricing. So now we see startups like uh, Space Chain, which is uh, one of our portfolio companies that uh, sends the aforementioned satellites into space. We can do that for $100,000, $200,000. Awesome. Ten years ago, that would be $10 million, $100 million to do this literally the same form factor satellite. So the cost of a kilogram to space is falling like a rock, which means that average people's access to space is increasing every single day. And that, as a science fiction nerd, as a space nerd, that just makes me so happy. It's about technologies deflating. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. You know, computers are getting cheaper, space access is getting cheaper, all of the, all of the, the, Information uh, technology related economics are, are just going down. And that, that, that means nothing but good for humanity. I can honestly say that this conversation blew my mind. <laughs> I think they should just let you talk to everyone all the time. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing Absolutely. It.
It was fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you haven't already left a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do that now. Spotify just added rating, so please go ahead and click that five star. I'll see you guys next time.